And so we're telling people, as missionaries, this is what we do. We go to people and say, we want you to stop believing what you and all of your family and friends believe and what has always been the only obvious option to you. Jettison all that and then believe our story. And we hope they do that. We coax them into doing that. We expect them to do that. But then we turn that on ourselves and say, how easy would it be for you to um, unbelieve all these things, you know, that you believed all along? And you realize what a huge, difficult step we're asking them to make. You want to do a mic check? Yeah, Connor, you're going to have to really keep us on target. So we've discovered kind of through trial and error that about a fist away is good. Okay. Any further than that, and it ends up getting too quiet. Okay. Yeah. So, like, if you have to look at it cross-eyed, then you're doing it right. Then you're good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If you can't see it all, then it's too close. (laughs) All right. Yeah. Wow. Um, They made this room especially for us. It's really great, yeah. actually. Um, we our, told our plaque hasn't come in yet. No, it's not. The name's not on the door. <laughs> but it really is cool. I need to write that joke down, man. <laughs> pretty good joke. That was a good joke, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very good at jokes. So what I do is I just go ahead and hit record, and then I cut it out afterwards. So there's not going to be like a, you're on Star. the air moment. Okay. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, get, um, I'll go back and clean it up. Yeah, Connor's our audio guy. Yeah, that's not easy. That takes a lot of work. Well, it's fun. Good. I do the sound design stuff, and then Macklin does the uh, the recruiting side. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, right. You're marketing. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm yeah. a marketing yeah. PR guy. <laughs> yeah. You have the iTunes account. That's pretty yeah, important. That helps. I love it. <laughs> I uh, 50 people is pretty great. Yeah. That's, that's pretty We're pretty impressive. excited about it. Um, I was looking at, like, did, did he, he already tell you where we're, our people are from? Yeah. Like, yeah. New York? Yeah. And then uh, for a while, I was like, man, what, what are three listeners doing from in Canada? Turns out it's the Atkins. Because <laughs> um, I was like, man. Oh, well, that's, yeah. that counts. But, yeah. They're abroad. Yeah. So. I, I hung out with Caleb and Leah. Leah just the other day. Actually, I drove them to the wedding and drove them home. And it was fascinating just talking to them, hanging out, and catching up. So, yeah. yeah. Where's Caleb at? Caleb, they're both doing centrifuge this summer. So I guess they're both living on campus, oh, wow. I guess. Um, like camp as, like, counselors? Uh, no, probably not. Probably as support staff. Mm. Um, union always hires some locals to, you know. Mm-hmm. I did it when I was here one summer, and my job was laundry centrifuge you know mm. so that's a big job yeah it is it's a lot of campers so smelly job uh-huh yeah <laughs> so i did laundry eight hours a day what did you major in my majors were history and it was called religion then you know, oh, okay it's really just christian ministry christian studies Theology. double major yeah okay yeah yeah i had planned you know to do the religion major but then i I loved the history classes so much mm-hmm. that I just sort of kept taking those as electives, and it just turned into a major too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. One of my favorite classes was a U.S. history class taught by David Thomas. Yeah. Um, and I took that my last semester of college uh, as an elective, and I and I I didn't go in there thinking like um, 
I didn't. I knew I was going to enjoy it, but I didn't know how much I was going to enjoy it. It was like, first of all, I was a great professor, so um, he like you can tell when a professor puts a lot of work into his into his lessons, right? <clears throat> and he like I remember he we talked about like how the history is reflected in the art of the era and like mm. he would he brought out modern art stuff and you know it was it was pretty fascinating uh, it, it was american history what what time frame it was like 1950s onward oh that'd be cool yeah, yeah. it was great and so. is, is that david thomas is that dave and is his wife nan thomas nan yeah is yeah. it nan or nance or nancy or all of them or right. nan all of them okay yeah, i think so <laughs> yeah he's man he's a top-notch guy yeah yeah uh, they're a great couple so. um so, mm-hmm. do you want to start, or do you want me to? I'll I'll let you go ahead. And take okay, okay. Well, I'll just pose the question to you. What do you want to talk about? Because okay. that was a great list that you sent, and yeah. any of those topics you mentioned okay. would be awesome to cover. Sure. Um, sure. Well, I mean, obviously, the probably what have I experienced or right. learned or what's been going through my mind as an Ethiopian missionary, you know, right. Ethiop- a missionary in Ethiopia. Um, and when you asked me what I was interested in, I thought about now that we've been back to visit for a month and a half, um, I keep running into this thought of how getting out of the American culture, getting out of the Bible Belt, getting out of our world here, going to a different culture, how it makes you see yourself fresh through the eyes of someone else through the eyes of another culture and it just brings your attention to things that you you always took for granted or assumed and realized the rest of the world doesn't assume that Mm. you know it'd be like um i always use the example of fish in water if fish went and lived at the top of a mountain for a while you know and then went back into the water how would they think about water you know, and so when I come back, I think a lot about those kinds of issues. Um, I think that was what was on my mind when I sent you the list. I don't even remember what the list was, but it was those it was those kinds of uh, insights maybe that were coming from time overseas. Yeah, mm. yeah. Well, I'd like to cover uh, the the things that you notice, the cultural differences, and things like that. I'd also like to cover just personally what. Mm being a missionary has been like for you. Yeah. Uh, the process of how you became a missionary in the first place. Right. Uh, maybe some of the things that people who aren't missionaries don't think yeah. is part of the experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, um, I mean, it's funny. You'd, you would get 180 degrees different trajectory on these answers if, right. if you had Cindy here versus me, you know, um, we're really having two different experiences, uh, but I think I've noticed more of the challenges and the difficulties and the struggles, and uh, she's done better at just adapting and adjusting and mm. um, uh, making the transition. So um, I could probably look at missionary life from the struggle side, you know, and she could probably look at it from the success side. But um, I notice when we send out email updates, we always just send out the success stories, you know? Um, That's what you do. That's how you keep your donors updated and all that. But there's just so much downtime and slow uh, life and pace of life 
mm-hmm. that you know, how are you going to write a missionary update about what you know what you did that what a typical day looks like when a typical day may maybe you didn't do anything that day mm-hmm. or you know I mean it's Ethiopia there's a lot of downtime and if the truck's broken down and it's raining all day you know could be a day just sitting inside but um I think uh the best thing for me was getting far enough outside of the church culture to then look back and see all the debates and all of the disagreements that I had with other Christians or that other Christians have with each other in the media, on the radio, podcast, the books that keep coming out, how in the camp of the Christian church in America, we really are talking to each other in a tiny bubble and getting outside of that and realizing um, there are so few Christians in the world okay. that we should just realize these little things don't mm-hmm. matter. You let's, know? Pop, let's pop the bubble. Right, pop the bubble and just be thankful that person's a Christian, mm-hmm. regardless of the tiniest little silly things to disagree over. Um, and also maybe vocabulary using mm-hmm. right. I don't know, Christianese. Right. I mean, I don't really like that term, but it is what it is. It is. So. Yeah, we do it, and we, don't, we can't help it. And, um, but then when you have to translate it into a different language, you know, it doesn't always work. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Um, I think what I discovered after growing up in the South in church life, you know, with extremely involved family in church life and being the... Um, church kid, um, I realized going to Ethiopia how hard it is to be a Christian, how strange it is to be a Christian. It's not normal. It's not regular. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to be and do and believe, whereas, you know, in my life growing up, everyone did it. Everyone believed it. Um, you either were an atheist, which... I couldn't bring myself to believe, or you were a Protestant evangelical Christian in the South. You know, mm-hmm. that's what that's what theism meant. Yeah. Well, you go to another country, and all of a sudden, theism is a huge umbrella, and Christianity is just a tiny little strip on this long continuum of religious faith. You know, and uh, so it's like pulling way back, zooming out, and seeing um, Christianity for how. What a strange idea it is globally. You know, I have in Ethiopia, they say it's probably 30 or 40 percent Muslim. You know, um, the rest of uh, the people there have a type of Christianity that would probably, in an American context, would make the most sense to d- compare it to kind of the Catholic Church maybe two or three hundred years ago. It's kind of what that's like. Um, and so Protestant evangelical Christianity is the, the oddity. It's, we're the ones who seem like the cults, the Jehovah's Witness, you know, the Mormons. Um, we're, it's not on every radio station. It's not on every bookshelf. It's not, you know, every teacher you have at public school doesn't go to the church down the street kind of thing. What percentage did you say? Probably 30 to 40 percent Muslim. Right. And then almost everyone else in Ethiopia would say they're Ethiopian Orthodox Christians, 
Yeah. So Protestant, Protestant evangelical. I've, I've heard five or ten percent. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, yeah, we're the minority, and uh, so it's it's been eye opening. It's forced me to realize it's it's a strange, difficult thing to believe and practice globally because we are so weird and so different. Um, and then and to see it through their eyes, not just not just in Ethiopia, but taking myself out of the culture and then looking back, and I realize. Um, I heard someone describe Christianity as, uh, you know, a a young teenage Jewish girl got pregnant, gave birth to God, the government killed him, but he came back to life. And if you believe what I'm saying, then you can be forgiven for any sin you commit. Mm -hmm. Now, if you'd never heard of Christianity, and then someone said that to you, you would think it was a, a crazy... Disney story or some crazy uh, myth, you know, or some, it's hard to believe that. Uh, but like I say, growing up, every, every, you just believed it. If you were a decent person, you believed it. If you were, um, you were either a terrible criminal rebel or a good Christian kid, mm-hmm. you know. So I, it opened up my eyes to see that there's a whole other world out there of people who are, um, believing lots of other things and so it forces you to start back from square one and say do I really believe this you Mm -hmm. know when I look at it through their eyes do I really believe it and so that's been really helpful for me and and in a way it kind of opens the doors and it opens the windows and it lets in fresh air and it lets in fresh light um, to what can get sort of stale and monotonous and typical and um, forces you to um, realize what a miracle it is when somebody else believes the gospel, <laughs> whether they're Catholic or Orthodox or whatever, you know. And so you don't care what style of music they like. You don't care what they think should be the translation you use, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if you over there, well, if we find other Christians, we get together with them from every kind of denomination from every kind of mission agency, every different age group. Like we have a Thursday night prayer group of uh, really it's mostly European missionaries and it's mostly women over 65 and me and Cindy. And we get together and pray and they're like a lifeline for us because they they believe the gospel, you know, Mm -hmm. in this crazy context. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we we had a discussion about some technical theological position – we probably have as many different opinions as we have people, but we don't, you know. We just, okay, we're the Christians, and that's good enough. And so that's, that's helped me to sort of broaden that approach to Christianity, my yeah. view of the gospel. Yeah. And uh, at what point did that, did you find yourself tracking back to square one uh, when, you, when you went over to Ethiopia and you realized, okay, uh, my goodness, this is this is a totally different Christianity is viewed totally different than it is here in America, mm-hmm. and you have to ask yourself, how do I view Christianity now? Mm-hmm. Uh, where where did that when did that start, and was that like when was that a hard process for you to go through? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and what sort of brought you out to the other side, thinking, yeah, fantastic. Mm. 
Great question. Um, I think what what happened was, uh, in my context, as I say, there had really only been two options. You either just don't believe in God or you're a Baptist, you know? Um, and when I realized that there's a incredibly much larger, broader opportunity there um, of things to believe, I had to kind of ask myself, why do I believe? Mm-hmm. Is it because I, I didn't want to be a bad person? I didn't want to be a, one of those bad kids, you know? Um, or do I really believe this? Uh, one of the things growing up that I would tell myself, well, if, if the question came to my head, is Christianity true? I would think, well, yeah, I mean, how could there be this many churches? I mean, if Christianity weren't true, mm. how could there be 2,000 years of it? It, wouldn't, it would have died out if it weren't true. But then you get out of your culture and you're like, wait a minute, we're, Islam didn't die out and we're claiming mm-hmm. that it's not true. The Hindu religion <laughs> didn't die out and we think it's completely outrageous, you know. Um, Mormonism is growing even though it doesn't take much investigation to see what a farce it is, you know. And so we're telling people as missionaries, this is what we do. We go to people and say, we want you to stop believing what you and all of your family and friends believe and what has always been the only obvious option to you. Jettison all that and then believe our story. And we hope they do that. We coax them into doing that. We expect them to do that. But then we turn that on ourselves and say, how easy would it be for you to... Um, unbelieve all these things, you know, that you've believed all along, and you realize what a huge, difficult step we're asking them to make. Um, so, yeah, back to your question, I had to, I had to go back to asking myself, you know, why do I think this is true? And I couldn't just rely on the fact that um, it was it was cult. I couldn't rely on the cultural aspect. I couldn't rely on the fact that. It's the historical aspect of the church, you know. And then I kind of came across, just in my own reading, studying, listening, I sort of came across some really good um, explanations from non-Christians, anti-Christians, describing how Christianity may not be true, and then they would explain, and yet this is why it's so popular, this is why the church is so influential, you know and realized also there's even answers to those questions. Um, so it pushed me into a corner where I couldn't believe in Christianity for any of the wrong reasons. I had to either believe that it just really happened or not. Um, I came across the, uh, the controversies about Scripture, the contradictions in Scripture, um, that people point to so often who want to debate Christians, especially Muslims. You know, they won't point to um, the four endings of the Gospels. The If you sat mm-hmm. down and took all four Gospels and you were going to just chart out what happened after Jesus rose from the dead those next few weeks, and if you wrote that narrative from Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then tried to harmonize those... It, I don't, it's almost impossible. It is so hard because the reports are so jumbled up, you know. Mm. Was it, 
did Jesus appear to the women or did angels appear to the women? Did Jesus tell them to uh, meet him that night in the upper room or did he tell the ladies to tell them to meet him 70 miles away? You know, um, There's so many apparent discrepancies there. Uh, and I realized that people have really good reasons for disbelieving in Christianity and rejecting reason rejecting Christianity, mm-hmm. and that things that I'd never thought of, I'd never been taught in all of my school and all of my seminary and all of my reading, I wasn't reading those books. I wasn't answering those questions. And so it really forced me into apologetics to really go back and say, could I answer somebody who wanted to ask these questions? You know, not somebody who wanted to debate whether you should sprinkle or immerse, but somebody who wanted to debate why are the, you know, gospels so different. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is all happening in Ethiopia? Yeah, yeah. In the midst of all the culture shock and getting used to it. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, I think because I had so much extra time to read and so much extra time to, yeah. And and then just trying to look at Christianity through the eyes of someone from a completely different religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. It forced me to. Yeah. 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 Um, And of course, that's all stuff going on in my brain and not really, it's not like I was having classes or having any discussions with anyone about any of that stuff. It's just in my head. Um, uh, And then also, you know, just a little change directions a little bit, going out into the countryside with Nagash, with one of the Ethiopian Christian leaders there. And um, confronting a lot of witchcraft, a lot of um, animism, confronting a lot of uh, spiritual warfare, demon possession. You know, what am I going to make of all those sorts of things? How am I going to react to that? It was never a part of my background, you mm-hmm. know, and yet for them, it's everything. Uh, you know, I probably you heard recently that the Ethiopian. Uh, airplane crashed, um, and one of my best Ethiopian Christian friends said to me a day or two after that that all of the people, all the Christians in Ethiopia were taking that as a wake-up call from God, telling them to repent, you know, and telling them it was a message from the Lord that they should, you know, try harder, work more, do more, fast more, pray more, and that was so different from anything I've ever thought about a plane yeah. crash, you yeah. know? But for them, it was like, well, of course. I mean, that's wow. that was the default assumption on their part, whereas my default assumption was nowhere near that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so just, to, just those are just some examples of where I just, I really had to stretch my brain where as here, you know, it's like, uh, well, it's like thinking in a different language. Um, they... They think in a different language from us. Mm-hmm. So that's stretching. <clears throat> that's interesting to me because uh, I'm sort of going through similar questions right now. Um, and one thing that uh, has struck me about the liturgy that we go through at church, at Christ Community, um, the liturgy is something I've grown up with. And so I'm not, I don't really have a whole lot of attachment to it either way um but recently there's been one word in the liturgy that we say that has been uh 
groundbreaking for me. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> and it's when we're in the prayers of the assembly. And one of the first ones is um, we pray to the Lord to help us to cling to him and cling to our faith. Hmm. And the word cling, I think, is so important there mm-hmm. because it's not... It's not him. We're not asking him to let us just ride along. It's not even us latching on. Mm -hmm. Because latching on has a connotation of secureness. Mm. But clinging doesn't. I mean, if you've ever been clinging on to a Mm. (laughs) back of a truck when it, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not safe. There's Um, a desperation. It's a desperation. And, uh, and the fact that we use that word has yeah. really in, has been really good for me to go through that part of the liturgy because I just ask the Lord, please just help me to cling on to you mm-hmm. um, because it's it's hard to believe sometimes yeah. um, and <clears throat> so yeah that, that 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 it's interesting that you bring that up mm-hmm. so yeah and when I come back to America, I mean I find so many of my Christian friends from years past leaving the faith or struggling with the faith or angry at God. Um, And I realize all my life growing up, especially being Baptist, Southern Baptist, um, the unspoken response to a question like that would be, well, those questions don't really matter because if a person's saved, they can't get unsaved, Mm -hmm. right? So let's move on to a different topic. And so, I mean, it's like my church background was almost deliberately avoiding the questions that most of my Christian friends now are asking. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, they were purposely and consciously willing not to go down those um, pathways of investigation because they just figured, well, you know, it, you can't lose your salvation. So it doesn't matter. And now here I am wanting to answer my friends who ask these questions, wanting to have peace in my heart when the questions come up in my head. Sure. And, I mean, we're starting from zero because we have no background in this, you know. And so I've started trying as best I can to use the language like quitting Christianity, you know, Um, because this is what people are doing. I don't know. I I can't fully diagnose theologically and scripturally exactly what's happening, but, you know, from watching it happen, it looks like they're quitting being a Christian. Mm-hmm. You know? And we're talking large scale in the West, in America? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I'd not, yeah, I'd never run across that in Ethiopia yeah. at all. Right. Never at all. Although, um, when Americans will come and visit for mission trips and stuff, and they get out of their r- routine... They, they will start asking those kind of questions, and they mm-hmm. have time to, and there is no internet, and there is no TV, and so they sit and brood over their heart questions, and uh, I hear them ask them then, but no, not the Ethiopians. Do you think uh, this might be too difficult to boil down to, to a simple response, but do you think that this change that's happening in America is a good thing or a bad thing? Because I could see how it could be positive, yeah. but there would be a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, toil and tears right. along the way. Right, but. right, right. Explain that a little more about why, how could that be positive? Well, if so much of the Christianity in America is nominal Christianity, then maybe 
people being honest with themselves is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and maybe, and maybe the church can, can minister to people better if no one is trying to change their vocabulary. Yeah. Or if no one is trying to, uh, sweep the hard questions into the closet. Yeah. 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 There is a, one result from all this could be, you know, I hate to say that we're purifying the church, yeah. you know, because it sounds like the people who depart are bad. Mm-hmm. But I mean purifying in the sense that the only ones who keep going are the ones who really, really are convinced, you know. And well, you ones... could say there's a theological purifying for sure. Sure. I mean, yeah, people yeah. have to nail down mm-hmm. what they believe and why they believe mm-hmm. it. Right. And like I was saying, I mean, in the past, if you believed in God, you didn't really have to think any deeper than that. And so you'd mm-hmm. go to Christian church. You know, and that was it. And yeah, God's real. So, and everybody knows the Christmas story and the Easter story. So, mm-hmm. I guess I'm a Christian. You know, mm-hmm. um, so if it forces people to really wrestle with the truth of it for themselves, that could be a good thing. You know, but good thing it could also it would also be a painful thing, a disruptive thing, a destructive thing, yeah, a an unpopular thing. You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a long way from this side of the river over to the good side of the river, and the current is so strong, you know, that nobody really wants to wade into those waters. Although everyone is, obviously, you yeah. know, everybody is. Everybody I talk to is, and so here we go. You know, we gotta have to do that, um, and that's gonna happen when anytime globalization happens. And American Christian Church gets out of the parochial, local universe into a global mindset and realizes Christianity is just one option among many. And all the other options have just as many logical reasons to be valid as Christianity does, you know. Um, I mean, culturally logical, you know. Um, So, yeah, uh, it could be a good thing. But, boy, you really got to be prepared to wreck your life, mm-hmm. tear it down to the barest essentials, and then start rebuilding. Yeah. And probably some people will do that and come out higher and better than where they started. Mm-hmm. You know? And then some people will not. They'll be shipwrecked, and mm-hmm. they'll ruin their families and marriages and churches and... Uh, um, so it'll be a mixed bag. You know? yeah. 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 What kind of, uh, this is, uh, this is huge, but what kind of, what kind of answers are you in the process of finding to these questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, personally, I really am at the question stage. Um, I am as much, maybe more seeking the answers than I am spreading the answers. Okay. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think the answers will be found. I th- the only thing I can guess is that the, the answers will have to be found in the supernatural. You know, we'll have to, people are going to have to experience supernatural things to base their faith on, like they do in Ethiopia. That's a hard answer for people who don't think they see miracles. Right. 
Right. And that for a lot of people, God doesn't answer my prayers, and that's why I'm quitting Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for the people in Ethiopia, if you ask them why are you a Christian, they would say, "Well, one time this happened, and one time this happened, and one time this happened." You know, to my mother, to my brother, and I saw this, and they would have stories of miraculous, supernatural, answered prayers, and things like that. And I noticed that going over there on mission trips. And so I wanted to move there and immerse myself in that type of Christianity. I thought it was a fresh, lively, energetic form of Christianity. And I wanted to help, but I also wanted it to rub off on me, you know. And my experience, at least in the first five years I've been doing it, is um, some of it has rubbed off on me. And some of it has the curtains been pulled back and and it's not as real as I thought it was, you know. Um, Some of it is cultural. Some of it is superstitious. Some of it is psychological, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So even that is not a panacea. It's not going to fix everything. But for those people who do have a genuine supernatural encounter or experience with God, no amount of doubt or logical reasoning can shake them off of that. And those are the people I envy. Those are the people I want to be like. That's the experience I want to have. Mm-hmm. And those are the people who get through it, who make it to the end. Um, <clears throat> and they're few and far between, but they're strong Christians, you know, and they're yeah, not going to yeah. back down. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. We had recently at church, we had the 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 gospel reading was the story of Thomas. Mm-hmm. And um, that one's, that's a tricky passage for me because in the story there's one person out of 12 who's really struggling with doubt mm. uh, wow. and who doesn't get to see the miracle. Well, he does, but it's delayed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Jesus does show him the miracle, but it's later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, here it's the other way around. Right. It's like one person in 12 has the amazing experience right. and everybody else is mm-hmm. trying to take them at their word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jesus is so gracious to him. Yeah. I mean, he still shows up. He yeah. still reveals himself to Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just more delayed. Yeah. So, yeah. That that's the you're right. That is exactly the right numbers. It seems like you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for every one super solid, strong, convinced Christian I know, I know eleven people that are on the fence now. Yeah. Know, or off the fence even. So yeah, you're you're diagnosing the problem here, right? Um, I I guess that happens in a culture where Christianity is waning, you know, it's kind of the twilight years of cultural Christianity in America. Some would, you know, just call it a post-Christian country where, you know, for so long it was the only game in town, and now it's being questioned from every possible direction. So maybe that just goes hand in hand with this stage in the, the cycling life of the gospel in a country, and we're catching it on the end where it's not going to be a part of the culture, or, you know. And so those of us who grew up assuming it are now now going to have to really wrestle, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're unprepared because, like I said, uh, no one asked those kinds of questions. Um, I didn't think about those kind of questions. I didn't hear sermons on those kinds of questions. Everyone's sort of afraid to address it. And I remember as the question started coming into my brain, 
and hearing about my friends that were quitting Christianity, um, I remember thinking, is this a good idea to think about this, or should I just continue to ignore it? Because I'm afraid if I don't just ignore it, it's going to be a long, hard road with lots of difficulty and emotional struggles. And maybe the wisest thing to do would be to just keep my head in the sand, and that'll be more pleasant and easier. And that was very compelling and tempting, and I'm still not sure that that's not the you know best way because, mm-hmm. gosh, it sure seems a lot easier. You know? yeah. But um, if you're going to wrestle this dragon, um, is it worth it? I don't know. Is it worth it? Because you, you, you stand to lose so much, and, and I mean lose by losing your confidence, losing your friends, losing, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. But um, that's what we do, right? We wrestle dragons. We fight against these things. Uh, we're not here just to bury our heads in the sand. So, mm-hmm. so I think we're all doing it, and I think we have to, you know, if we're going to keep being Christians for the next 30 years, you know. Um, in this context, I think most of the sermons, most of the books, most of the Christian conversations around the water cooler now are going to be, what if all religion's bad? What if Christianity is uh, just a cultural hoax? You know, what if um, all religions are equal? You know, nobody asked me those questions in VBS. You know, yeah. but everyone asks them now. So, yeah. Another big question that needs to be asked is something like, uh, uh, who are we? Like, what does it mean to be human? Mm. Um, I mean, how can we start to, how can we start to answer questions about God if we can't even define what it means to be human? Mm. I mean, Mm. we're asking so many questions about, you know, is, is when does life begin? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, when where's the line between artificial intelligence and human? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What's another one? Mm-hmm. I keep seeing that category over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there a difference <coughs> between human and animal? Right. Um, right. Differences between men and women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are all extremely introspective questions that need to be had before you can start to look out yeah. at the miraculous. Right. Um, right. And those questions aren't, they're not getting answered yet. No. So. And I think they generate up out of a scientific context, like, you know, AI and the start of life, the end of life, and even mm-hmm. gender issues, you know. Um, science, we, we think scientifically. Um, my generation, your generation, we, it's just in our DNA. It wasn't in our grandparents' and great-grandparents' DNA. But it is in ours, you know. Our yeah. world measures everything by science, including whether or not the gospel is true. So science is going to force us to ask um, those kinds of questions. Uh, and the problem is we, the only tool we've been given in the culture is science, you know, to answer these scientific questions, um, th- these questions that science raises, I should say. Um, so no one's very skilled yet at addressing these things. So it's just very few people that have anything helpful to say on the subject. You're searching yeah. and searching and searching for a good book. You're searching for a sermon. You're searching for a podcast where somebody has thought about this long and hard. Huh? Have you found any 
other toolkits uh, <laughs> in your journeys? Yeah. Um, not yet. Okay. Um, send yeah. in your, your ideas, you know, <laughs> please email me if you yeah. find something. Um, and I, I just mean other ways of looking at the world yeah, that, yeah. that doesn't rely so much on the brain. Mm, right. Yeah. Well, um, th- that's where, like, as I say, all these questions that scientific culture is asking, these are the questions the Western culture is asking. Right. And the Ethiopians don't care, you know, they don't ask any of these kinds of questions. Um, so they can speak to us. I think they have something to teach us in that they, um, just because they're coming at it from a totally different direction and they're going to see things we don't see and think ways that we don't think. And isn't that what we're saying? We need to be, you know, um, shaken up in the way we think and view these things. And so hopefully... Um, because when I think about the real solid, strong Christian, especially women in Ethiopia, um, man, they're in, <laughs> whether or not God exists is the farthest thought from their mind. You know, whether or not God is mad may be on their mind. You know, mm-hmm. whether or not God is going to feed my family, you know, that may be on their mind. But um, maybe the brightest thinkers in Christianity will come from the global south outside of the scientific culture of the west and be able to breathe fresh air, you know, and uh, <clears throat> shake us loose. Because maybe we've kind of, we're kind of getting ourselves into a little eddy in the river where we can't even come up with our own answers, you know, and something from a complete opposite direction will have to come through, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. This is really important also to name, not just for the people who are struggling with these questions, but for the people who aren't. Mm. They need to know that people around them are struggling, yeah, right. and they need to be patient. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm in a weird place in the middle uh. where I'm asking these questions, but I haven't, I haven't reached a level of struggle that I see in some other people. Right. So I'm in a weird in between. Yeah. So it's like sometimes I, it's like I'm still able to put on both hats in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure yet if that's a good thing because it feels like I'm not too invested one way or the other and I want to be invested. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the very least I'm trying to show empathy yeah. <laughs> to both sides because <laughs> it's needed. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. One thing that I I thought about um, in regards to the Ethiopian Christian culture and your answer to, about why they believe was they would say something like, oh, well, you know, God did this to my brother and this to my sister and stuff like that. And it just really thought, it made me think about the ancient Israelites um, mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, you know, God part of the Red Sea and then he gave them water and then he gave them manna and he did this to his brother and this to his sister and um, I used to I mean I, I'm sort of still deciding uh, I mean in one way it seems easier for that to be your experience um, but on the other hand you also look at how many times the Israelites really screwed up and you're like well I don't want that either mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I'm, I'm, 
and I also worry about uh, like uh, my tendency for things to be based on feeling. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I think emotion and feeling have got to have a play, mm-hmm. a part to play. Uh, but but they certainly can't be everything. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's all. Those are all big questions, um, and uh, and they're they're even harder to answer mm-hmm. <laughs> than they are to ask. So mm-hmm. um, this this sort of brings me to one question that I had for you was um, you're you're one of the most honest persons I know, um, as I think we've seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, and uh, like that's not commonly found. You know, um, when at least I, I don't know how it is in Ethiopia, but in America, it's like you you put on the the church face, and we're all really good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some sense, I think there's a place for the church face uh, because if everybody went around moping all the time, then that would be you know <laughs> one problem, and then that would could lead to things like dramatic entrances, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, my question to, to say all that is like, where, where did this, where did that honesty in you come from? And I mean, is this something that you've just always had or did you start, did you realize, okay, this is this, I need to start doing this more? Yeah. No, I definitely didn't have it for most of my life, I would think. Um, you know, we need to bump up against friends, real friends, who are nothing like us at all to force us to ask the important questions. And I'm fortunate to have had, you know, a handful of friends who just came from a different planet than I did, you know, mm-hmm. um, culturally, spiritually, and every other way. And um, I I uh, learned from them, you know, to to be a little more transparent and honest. So mm-hmm. that's one answer. The second answer is, anytime you do hear a preacher or a teacher, Christian teacher, being honest, especially about their doubts and faults, something in you just leaps. Like, oh, thank you. This is great. Yeah. Go. Good. Thank you. I've been looking for this. Yeah. So if if I crave that so much, then I assume others do too, you know? So... Yeah. Um, and... Luckily, I'm in a position where I don't have to keep some sort of facade up. Of course, some people will be surprised to hear that because I live based on donations, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I figure if being honest loses our sponsors, then we should lose our sponsors. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, some people, and I feel for them, some people are in positions at churches or Christian universities and places where they just cannot... They can't show the slightest little crack in their armor, mm-hmm. you know. But, boy, if you talk to them behind the scenes, even they will be honest, you know. Yeah. And it's it's never as um, simple as it's made to look mm-hmm. publicly, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's something that, uh, I, I, I mean, I remember um, one of, like, two sermons that I can remember was yours uh when you came a couple i guess it was last year and uh you just presented a lot of honesty to the church and um i had sort of started at at that point um i mean this is something i've talked about in previous podcasts but uh i used to be a habitual liar just Mm. 
in any way that I could make someone think high, more highly than mm-hmm. of me. Yeah. Um, that was like what I was going to do. <laughs> and, um, and then at some point I just stopped doing that. Uh, Reagan, my wife, um, wasn't that way. And, um, and there was like this period of like two or three months where like, uh, every, I just had to, I just had to tell her every lie that I said and, you know, uh-huh. and then, and sort of, get all that out and then since then like it's just been I've just realized like I can be confident in who I am wow. and um and so like I've seen I've seen people have a lot of response when they're honest with the way that they're feeling I remember when I was about to get married I had a a certain mentor who like would just always air out all of his dirty laundry. Mm-hmm. And he was the one I would always go to to talk. Like, yeah. you know, me and Reagan screwed up in this way, and he'd be like, well, that's okay, I screwed up in this way. And that was really helpful for me mm-hmm. because it felt like I wasn't alone and that I didn't have to, I didn't have to, I didn't have to, like, um, you know, suffocate myself trying to meet this impossible standard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, mm. yeah, taking that mask off and being transparent, and really transparent, you know, in the way that you could be like, some people could hate you, you know, it's so freeing, <laughs> you know, it is so good and it's so encouraging to others, um, but it has a dangerous side, you know, it could really disturb and disrupt some people. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the fact that I do know a small handful of Christians who are totally transparent, but that's not revealing these horrible sins or horrible doubts. They're just transparent because they're just really good people. You know, I think (laughs) about my wife, you know, Mm -hmm. she has no ability to try. She, she doesn't never even thinks about trying to control or influence how she's being perceived publicly, you know? All she can do is just be guileless and mm-hmm. honest. And she, I don't know how many times she's accidentally told a secret, you know, that was supposed to be kept secret because she just doesn't, mm. you know, she's just that good, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that kind of person who's transparent. Um, but then the other kind I think was much more common is those of us who have such ugly stuff in the in the closet that we're hiding. And when we find out that every, well, that many others' closets are full of the same thing, wow, there's just no way to describe the, the kind of peace and the relief. And the community that can be formed. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. uh, the connections that you can make that would be far deeper mm-hmm. than if you had just talked about the eggs you had for breakfast. Right, So right, right. Yeah, it's an instant bond. Yeah, it is. I've been working on um, putting the psalms to music mm. for for the church, mm. and uh, it's interesting because there's so much honesty in the prayers, things that you wouldn't expect to see in mm. the Bible. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, after the psalmist pours his heart out and says all this kind of radical stuff, mm-hmm. then he's like, now everybody feel this way. Yeah, right. So there's there's kind of a give and take. Mm. Like there's there is this this radical honesty and then there's also kind of leading your emotions at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there somehow the Psalms have both and sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. Yeah. Yeah. 
And especially the Psalms. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because I was I heard somebody just giving this number that 40% of the Psalms are laments. Or, um, and I don't know. I haven't done the math, but I'm sure that's close to being correct. Um, but and not just laments like, oh, you know, evil is bad. Isn't that sad? But laments like, where are you, God? Yeah. Why have you left me? Mm-hmm. Um, how long, God? Or how in the world could you have done that, God? Real laments. Um, 40% of the Psalms. So if um, 40% of our prayers, 40% of our sermons, worship, songs aren't somewhat like that, mm-hmm. then we're maybe we're not being biblical Christians, mm-hmm. you know? And I think about now there there is one place where um, Ethiopian Christianity really lacks because zero percent of their songs would be laments and zero percent of their sermons would address it because they just do not take the mask off. They do not. Transparency is just not uh, hmm. valued there. Um, in fact, one really good Christian lady told my wife and I that uh, she had a a bad health problem, and she'd been struggling with a bad health problem for a long time, and she asked us to pray for her and her health problem, and we said, uh, and she was crying, you know, it, I think it was, uh, what was it? It was um, kind of a blood pressure, heart problem, and we said, are the people at your church helping you through this? And she said, oh, I haven't told any of them, you know. Why, why not? You should have gone directly from the doctor's office to the church and told them, everybody pray for my health. And she's like, well, no, I can't tell them because that's negative, mm-hmm. you know. I thought, mm-hmm. Oh, man, what a terrible feature of their Christian culture mm-hmm. that if everything's good, they can testify and everybody jumps and shouts and claps. But if something's bad, you just keep it secret, mm-hmm. you know. Um I don't want any part of that kind of Christianity, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was so relieved to be able to tell somebody and to know that some other Christians were praying for her. But she also was looking at us like, do you think I'm cursed? Mm-hmm. Is God mad at me? Am I, is it some hidden sin, you know? And well, she needed she needed some real reassurance. Mm-hmm. You know? I actually wanted to ask, but I wasn't sure when the right point to ask would be, mm-hmm. like if 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 the struggles that are going on in Africa are different than the struggles in the West. You know, what are the struggles? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, I really do picture the Christian church, Protestant Christian church, in our part of Africa is going through a lot of the things I think the church was going through here um, maybe 100 years ago or 75 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Um, Where, for example, you know, they wouldn't, they're very strict about secular music, very strict about alcohol, you know, hmm. very legalistic about this and this and this. And so it really looks like the American South in the 50s, you know. Hmm. And what we learned in American history about American Christianity in the South in the 50s is that it was beautiful and it was fake, you know, it was a hmm. facade. Mm-hmm. And uh, it only took a few years for that facade to sort of crack. And I wonder if that's in the future for the Ethiopian Christians because um, every once in a while, one of them will, in private, kind of pull me aside and say, you know, when you were teaching about that, um, I hate to admit it, but this is true, you know, something, 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 and should confess something negative or ugly about herself or the church. 
So, um, do you think that the church in the West used to have more miracles? Ah, great question. Great question. Um, I mean, there are stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there used to be far more, I think. Um, you know, on the question of miracles and answered prayers, I was thinking about this the other day. I think we'd all agree the small number of Christians who are cessationists, who believe that, you know, real miracles, supernatural miracles uh, as a gift ceased at a certain part time in the early church, they have evidence on their side to support their theological position, you know. They could say, look at this, you know. But, um, so their case is easier to make in that sense. The case against them to say, no, no, real, supernatural, like scientific super bombs happen in the real world today as an answer to prayer, you know. Um, trying to make that case is is hard unless you've personally got a story, you know, um, because... Well, I tell you what I always did when I was growing up was I said, Jesus couldn't do many miracles in that town because they lacked faith. You know, that small passage where it says Jesus didn't heal very many people there in that town because he found very little faith there. And so I thought from that verse, okay, well, I see very few miracles in America, so I guess there's just not much faith in America. But, and I this is where I started to assume, I assume where... Christianity is out on the edges, there's probably lots of miracles happening, lots of supernatural things happening, um, because the people have more faith there, or in a pre-scientific culture like a lot of Africa, um, they have more faith, um, and so they're seeing more of those kinds of things. Um, now, having lived there and experienced it from the inside, I I think that less. I don't think. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it less. I expected to go and find all this evidence and proof and stories and examples, uh, but I had, that's not been my experience. Um, to, to disagree with myself, you know, to give credit to people who had a different experience. Um, Craig Keener is a New Testament professor, theologian, Mm-hmm. And he's also married to uh, an African lady. I forget where she's from, Nigeria or Kenya. Anyway, so he's gone over a lot, and he's lived in the African co- Christian culture, sub-Saharan African Christian culture. And he has written a book called Miracles, where he just documents all the miracles that he see has seen um, or can document. And I, it may even be a two-volume book. It's huge, you know. I mean, like a thousand pages worth of miracles. So um, if you're going to take his word for it or my word for it, he's by far the better person to listen to and respect, you know. But my personal experience has been well, just not that much, you know. I, I hoped I'd see more. I expected to see more, but I really didn't. I What I did see is a lot of times people having having psychological experiences and thinking they were supernatural and not really in the end when you finally pulled back the curtains it wasn't really as supernatural as it seemed would you put exorcisms in that category 
That's a great question. Um, because the, yeah. the story that we hear mm-hmm. from overseas right. is that typically a church is planted after mm-hmm. someone kicks a demon out, <laughs> right. and then everybody comes to faith. Yeah. So that sounds to us like that's the standard miracle, right. or at least that's the, that's the norm. Right. And, and people, the, the answer, they'll say, because there's so much demon activity there, because there's witchcraft, because there's so many false religions, there's such a history of real in-your-face kind of evil, and because demonic activity there, let's say Satan and the demons aren't afraid to show themselves there because the people already believe in them. You know, They're not hiding, they're not playing any kind of games. That demonic activity is just much more common and apparent there. And so there'd be lots more exorcisms. Um, that, so I, I expected to find a lot of that going on. What I've found is more... Um, most of the time, it's just some really confused psychological confusion and people with some real mental health issues and problems. Um, I, I can't personally testify to any single time when I watched and said, wow, that, that person was just delivered from a demon, you know? And you would think after five years and all those <laughs> nights in the countryside and all that time, with my gosh, that I would be able to say it, but I really have not. Um, and that's disappointing to me. I'm sure it's disappointing to your listeners. So, um, no, this is the part where we appreciate your honesty. Okay. <laughs> well, it's the, yeah, don't let Nagash listen to this. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm sure, you know, uh, again, I'm the tiny minority voice on that. And for every one of me, there'd probably be 10 Western missionaries who would stand up and say, don't listen to him. He's so wrong. Uh, I know I'm in the minority there. And maybe, uh, maybe it's my own personal problem, or maybe I just haven't been in the right place at the right time, but yeah, I just don't see much legitimately going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we don't either, so. Right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah, I was talking to a really good friend um, yesterday, and they were saying that they'd had this amazing supernatural experience, that they had a terrible week, they had a terrible conflict with somebody, a terrible fight with a person. The relationship was really strained. They went to church, and there was a person in the church that's very charismatic, very Pentecostal, very supernatural. And when they went in and saw this person, the person said to them, kind of almost like a prophet, kind of said to them, you, what's, real, what's troubling you? You need to let all that go. You need to let all that go. You need to just let it go. And the person's telling me the story. He said, oh, and I just melted. All of that came off of me. I was freed from all that anger. I released all that anxiety. It was just what I needed to hear. Somehow this guy knew God's word for me at the moment. And so this prophet spoke into my heart and relieved me from this horrible burden of anxiety and anger that I was fighting with, you know. And um, that's generally the story you hear, you know. And 90 Five percent of, you know, Christian podcasts would share that as an encouraging story. But if we're being honest, my mind immediately went to, you know, if I were a psychic, 
charlatan. That's what I would use mm-hmm. because everybody has something they need to let go. Everybody has some conflict with a person. So if I wanted to, you know, trick someone into thinking I was psychic or trick someone into thinking I was a prophet, I would say, you're having uh, a personal conflict with someone in your life and you need to release all that and let it go. I could really convince somebody that I was dialed into something supernatural, but it would just be human psychology, you know. So um, that's what I thought, you know. Uh, And I was almost ashamed of myself. I was like, oh, what a bad Christian. I'm supposed to rejoice with this person. I'm supposed to be so glad and, and so happy to hear this great news. And instead I thought, wow, that's a good one, you know. That's a good one. Um, so maybe I'm just jaded and cynical and uh, mistaken. I hope I am. But uh, a lot of, I think a lot of what happens in Ethiopia and in America in Pentecostal, charismatic, you know, prophet kind of stuff is, is that kind of thing. But the counter argument to that, someone might say, but your friend was relieved, you know. Your friend really was let uh, released from all that anger. They really did benefit from it. So God used that, you know, and we don't have to think about it any deeper than that, you know. We don't know. Maybe God gave that prophet a perfect word at the perfect time. I would have no way to prove either way. Mm-hmm. And so why not just stop thinking about it and just be glad? Um, that's probably the right thing to do, but... I, my, my brain went immediately to the, the cynical view. So sorry, mom. (laughs) So I'm going to throw this out there because this is something I've actually been thinking about. Um, so it's interesting that this has come up in our conversation. So here's, I'm just want to throw this out there to both of y'all and see what y'all think. Does the fact that we can explain a miracle away, stop it from being a miracle? Right. So here's an example. More babies survive now than have ever survived in human history. Mm. And supposedly we can thank science for that. Is it not also miraculous? Yeah. Mm. You want to? I love doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, my mom would always say, like, um, I remember um, her thing was she had she had this thing that bothered her when when people believed that like um, all you needed a chiropractor, you know, mm. and that for some reason, I mean, whether it's true or not, my mom obviously didn't think it was true, and she's like, doctors are great, man. I mean, just because. You know, a doctor is not God doesn't mean God's not using the doctors. Is is her logic, which is sound enough logic. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I <clears throat> I guess in terms of whether is is that God working? I think absolutely. I mean, He's allowed He's allowed for science to advance to the point where we can save a bunch of babies. It wouldn't have been otherwise. Uh, it's not something I would want to say to someone who says, I never see miracles. Sure. I mean, that, that'd be a very, right. you know, hard thing to tell someone. Mm-hmm. But 
it keeps rolling around in my head. Mm-hmm. Like, what if it's the opposite of what we think it is? We mm-hmm. think that we don't ever see any miracles. Maybe we see more mm-hmm. than we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe we've, maybe we were so used to seeing miracles that we don't know what they look like. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, two thoughts. Uh, one, you know, Paul, Paul really puts the weight of his ministry on power. He says, it's not my logic, it's not my reasoning, it's not my rationality, um, it's, it's not with words, it's not with philosophy, it's, it's with examples of power that his preaching spread and the gospel spread and the early church grew so much, you know. So obviously in that context, seeing supernatural or at least seeing powerful things happen was persuasive uh, for Paul's audience. Um, we're kind of in a different setting here because I don't know of any people in our circles and nobody in my circle who says, the way I preach is just by showing people the power of God. That's how I convince people mm-hmm. of, of God and Christ. Mm-hmm. I just show them the power of God. It, more often it's a, uh, an explanation of saying, well, right now it seems the power of God is a little bit behind the scenes, kind of hidden, maybe mediated through doctors or medicine. Um, and that, like I said, that could be because of American culture. We just don't have faith. And so God's not doing many miracles. Um, Sam Harris, the famous anti-Christian atheist, yeah. you know, yeah. he said about um, new, the New Testament that and Christianity, he said, uh, God seems to be trying to get people to accept things that are really hard to accept without really good scientific evidence. That seems to be the way God's making his appeal to the public is, I'm not going to show you proof. I'm not going to show you evidence. I'm not going to put on any kind of uh, demonstration. I'm going to ask you to believe, even though you have all these scientific doubts, even though there's all these apparent contradictions, you know. And, and so Sam Harris's idea is that's evidence that Christianity's invalid. But maybe the answer to Sam Harris is maybe that is what God's doing right now in this time and this place is that he's, uh, for, for some reason, veiled a lot of this supernatural uh, stuff and just relying on people to accept and believe or not, you know. Um, I don't know, but he he thought that uh, it was a bad strategy on God's part, you know. If God wants to build the church, then why doesn't he give really good evidence instead of really tricky evidence where you have to really see around it and dig underneath it and harmonize it with all these other things. Why does he make it so hard, you know? Um, but it's perfectly within God's right to make it hard if he wants, you know? And uh, the strategy seems to have worked. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. Christianity exploded. Right. So, yeah. 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 Um, and, that's, and that's the miracle is that people don't have some sort of proof. They don't have some scientific proof. Yeah. You have to come to Christianity on purely 
heart and spiritual grounds. You cannot come to it through your head. And the more heady we get, or the more heady people among us have the, the greatest struggles, you know. And I'm, I, I tend to be one of those heady kind of people, and so I struggle. Um, but I don't think that that's in any way superior to the people with childlike faith and mm-hmm. supernatural belief and yeah. peace with God, you know. In fact, I wish I was more like them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... There's a lot of uh, struggling with authenticity mm-hmm. in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other struggles that mm-hmm. the churches over there have to deal with? Mm-hmm. Uh, they've still got a patriarchal culture, um, in the family especially. So uh, if you're a Christian woman, for example, you just don't talk about any of your problems or struggles, and you try not to let any of your problems or struggles uh, appear because it's just difficult for others. Um, They lack the background. They haven't had enough time with the Western Christianity um, junk to be able to filter it out. So... Uh, a, a, a wonderful Christian over there, a great minister, a fantastic believer might totally like, um, what's that hat guy down in Houston? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Sorry. Joel Olstein. Oh, okay. You know, they might yeah. think a Joel Olstein book is wonderful, you know. Um, so they don't have that sort of ability to filter through the, the garbage that's out in Christian uh Know, so-called Christian publishing. And prosperity gospel kind prosperity of stuff. Prosperity gospel, okay. yeah, that kind of thing. Or, um, So the books that get published over there, the books that get translated, are always those really popular, really shallow, really unbiblical, mm-hmm. you know, hits. And the stuff that's really quality, the stuff that's really good is ignored and overlooked. So I think that that is sweeping the Protestant Christian church there. And um, that's what's every, well, that's what so many churches there want to look like. They want to have a, a light show and a loud sound system, and they want to have the happy clappy, you know, performance stuff. And uh, we are battling hard against that to try to keep uh, the worship service authentic and um, it's hard because uh, Christian television is huge in Ethiopia. Um, if hmm. they if they get ten channels, six of them will be Christian broadcasting. Wow! Yeah, and it'll be the bad kind of TBN, you know, the garbage stuff you see on TV. And it is so sad because then the well-meaning, um, I don't want to say naive Christians, but they just haven't they haven't seen, they just don't realize how bad this stuff is, you know. And it's on TV, and so they must have money. And if they have money, then God must be blessing them. And if God's blessing them, then let's imitate them. And oh my gosh, it's horrible. That's a tough one-two punch. Mm. Prosperity gospel in a place where persecution right. is going on. Yeah, 
Exactly. Well, yeah. 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 And w- prosperity gospel in a place where starvation is going yeah. on. You yeah. Know? So, so God must be mad at me. Right. Yeah. Or if I've got a nice, if I've got some money, God must love me, you know? And really, even in the Christian church there, there's a lot of celebrity Christianism. If, you know, if, you, if your pastor can get his face on a poster or a billboard in town, then you've got a great church, uh-huh. you know? Uh, and I'm sure it, all of us would fall for that if we had no experience with it, you know? But they are falling for it, hook, line, and sinker, and they just don't have the the baggage that we do to know that that's a lot of smoke and mirrors, you know. Um, so we're, yeah, working hard to try to warn them against mm-hmm. these celebrity pastors, and um, and uh, and also just uh, it's a culture that has very little interest in uh, reading. Um, the, one of the Ethiopian Christians told me that the way if an Ethiopian buys a, a new cell phone um, or a computer or a tablet or something, they take it out of the box, they throw away the user's manual, and they go find a friend who has one like that and lets them teach them how to use it. You know, you don't research. You Word of mouth is the way you learn. So they're not going to do a Bible study, right? They're going to go talk to some other Christian who's going to tell them how it works. And uh, Well, that's the default, right? I mean, the human brain doesn't have a reading lobe. <laughs> so, nice. I mean, that, that's, more, that's a more natural way to go, I would think. I mean. mm-hmm. So when we're pushing them toward the scriptures, toward uh-huh. the text, toward Bible study, it's really hard, you know. Um, Are audio Bibles a thing over there? We, we, yeah, Westerners are trying it. Um, there's, it's become very cost effective to get a little, you know, SD card with a Bible on it and let uh-huh. it let them pop it in their little cheap phones, and they can listen to the Bible on their phone. So that's really the way to do it now. But even that, you know, the Bible, you you have to study the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just consume it mm-hmm. like a novel. And if you can't search from book to book, if you can't search from verse to verse, um, it's hard. It's hard. Uh, plus, you know, um, so much of an audio Bible is Old Testament uh, that requires interpretation and context, and it's hard to give someone that through an audio Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, you know, hopefully the, uh, the good Bible study stuff will catch on and be popular. Um, but just like here, you know, usually the weak stuff uh, gets the most readership. You know, yeah. I guess that's it. Could be said that that's a little bit of the price that we pay for having the knowledge of. I mean, we hope like this is right theology. This is right. Uh, I mean that 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 luxury comes at the price of. Well, we also have a lot of knowledge on why this isn't true. And we also have a lot of evidence and scientific officials saying otherwise, um, which lends itself to, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it can be said that there's like that, there's that give and take there um, that we have to sort of deal with. Um, so. 
What's the Ethiopian Orthodox Church like? Um, ancient. I mean, it was there in place just right after the earliest church, spread of the early church. Um, they obviously say they are the 2,000-year-old uh, church, you know, and it, it, it has been stable and consistent, and they haven't had a bunch of splits or anything like that. So um, since, you know, at least the first 300 years of Christianity, they established Christianity in Ethiopia, and then it evolved in isolation with very little influence from Rome, very little influence from the West, very little influence even even from Eastern Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some influence from Egypt, but uh, so they have a lot of their own very uh, unique stories and saints and angel stories and things like that. Um, it is uh, it has lost its way definitely. It, it has very little of the gospel in it. Has very little grace in it. It has very little, um, really, very little forgiveness in it. It is definitely a system of works and merit. <clears throat> they uh, fast more days out of the year than they don't fast, um, and and really see that as the way to to get God's blessing. Um, they spend ninety five percent of their thoughts and words discussing and worshiping and praying to angels, saints, and Mary. Um, And they really try not to bother Christ or the Father um, and see that as a little presumptuous. Um, So uh, a lot of Protestant evangelical Christians in Ethiopia just sort of write them off completely. Just say, that's like a cult that they've gone so far afield from biblical Christianity that we'll just treat them as a false religion. Um, However, uh, there is within the Ethiopian Orthodox Church something called the Renewal Movement, and this is where the gospel has resurfaced and has come back to light among uh, many priests even, especially in the cities, not so much in the rural areas. But these priests will discover the gospel whether that's by sharing it with each other or finding it in scriptures. Um, and then they get persecuted by the church, the Orthodox, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. And these renewal movement guys have sort of banded together to try to support each other. A lot of them are getting kicked out. And so now they're at that place where they're having to decide, do we start a new church hmm. and just call it, you know, the Ethiopian Orthodox Reformed Church? Or do we stay in and try to transform the one church hmm. from within? It really is like it's like it's like fifteen hundred. That's that's and, what I was just yeah, thinking. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is the year fifteen hundred in Ethiopia in that sense, and they have the wisdom of the past if they read and learn from the Protestant Reformation, see what mistakes were made and try to avoid those, see what good things were accomplished, try to emulate those. But I think um, what will ultimately end up happening is they will have to have a separate church, which just breaks my heart. It's so disappointing. I would argue, I would want them to stay in, even if it takes a long time to really win the battle and get the gospel out. Still, just keep one church, you know. But their answer to me would be, well, 
the church kicked me out. Sunday's coming. Where am I going to have the Eucharist? I can't. Yeah. I, I'm not allowed in the doors. So I've got to start my own church or else I won't get to have the Lord's Supper, you know. And so it's a very utilitarian view of we have to have church. We can't go in that church, so we have to start our own. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid that's, that's the direction it's going to go. And then, of course, once you splinter, then it splinters and splinters and splinters again. So probably that's what will happen there. But, man. Have there been any cases of denominations coming back together? Oh. Or does it always just fractionate? Good question. Um, I, th- I think on local, in local scale, uh, several churches f- that are dying from several different denominations will recognize that they're dying and then just sort of, um, bu- you know, bond together right. to try to survive. I guess I was thinking more on a denominational on the national level. level. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I can't think I can't, of any, I can't think of but this. you're the church historian. Well, so. uh, there you go. And I can't think of any. And I'm sure there are out there, and I'm just not well-read enough. And I wish we had an expert to tell us what it was like and, you know, what could happen. <clears throat> and I'm sure it's happened, you know. But isn't that funny that in the, in the room, none of us can think of a single example, you know. It's just, it's just against human nature, you know. Yeah. What, um, on... Uh you had you had ta- ta- told me that you were something that you're interested in is the is gender roles and and sp- the role of masculinity. Mm-hmm. What is that? What does that entail? Because that covers a lot of yeah. a lot of ground, yeah. um, and it's something also that I'm interested in, and, and something that I'm finding out in my own life. Of the biggest question, you know, in everything has been like, do I have what it takes? And that sort of has been like what masculinity is, is, is finding out whether, and hopefully you do have what it takes. So I'd like to hear, like, what, what, what did you mean exactly by that? Yeah. Well, I definitely didn't mean gender politics. I couldn't care less about gender politics. I mean, I know that's not the hot topic issue right now. And so we have to, you know, we have to be savvy to deal with the culture, but I, I, I certainly don't have any interest in furthering that conversation. What I think of is, um, starting in about the 50s and the 60s, you know, the Christian church in America really became feminized, and it, it really stripped men of the masculine Christian role. Um, it, was, it was part of women's liberation. It was part of equality. You know, it was all for good reasons. But it, it really feminized the church so that um, the women did most of the work at the church, you know. They would they would do the Bible studies. They would do the children's church. And the men would maybe do a construction project. Maybe there'd be something like that. But the percentages began to skew heavily uh, towards women, and men were really left out. Then Promise Keepers and some other movements came along to try to bring men back into the church and to make the church more sensitive to to men. But they also wanted to be... Um, accepted by the culture, you know. And so that's a really tricky minefield to walk around in now. Because if even like right now, if any of us say it, says anything that sounds paternalistic, um, our listeners now are going to just be mad, mm-hmm. you know, because this is dynamite. 
but all that said, young men don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Uh, they're biologically and psychologically fitted to, to march out and conquer and fight something. That is our background, that's our past, that's our nature. And then they're taught that anything that even sounds like fighting or conquering is bad and evil. So um, they're left with nothing to do. If, um, if they press hard and try hard, then they'll uh, make everyone angry. If they're passive and meek in a negative way, um, they can just be quietly overlooked. Mm -hmm. So it's a problem. Um, so what they do is they find the one outlet where they can fight and conquer and um, battle, and that's in a video game. You know, No wonder they love video games. It's the one place that you can still be a man and do what men do, mm -hmm. um, whether that's building a city or tearing one down. You, know, you do it on a video game. Uh, so I would love for our culture to recognize that men are just men, and uh, rather than shaming them for having the impulse to do those things, we should channel them into doing those things well. You know, that's huge. Mm -hmm. um, for uh, if there was one place that, if you, if, I think, if the church wanted to make the biggest difference on culture in America as a whole, mm -hmm. you should reach. You should dial it in on how to reach young men. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, that is my firm, firm, firm mm -hmm. belief. Uh, mm -hmm. High school students about to go out of out of the house. It's like they have got to know uh, one that they can handle it um, in a way that's positive, and two, they've got to know that they have support wow. when they can't. That's great. Uh, um, yeah. And you would see um, crime rates go down. You yeah. would see marriage rates go up. Oh. You would see. <clears throat> dads interacting with their kids um, mm -hmm. and to have that I mean it's not like the danger is like guys generally suck more than women mm -hmm. I mean like you know we're not nearly as gracious we're not right. nearly as um, you know there's there's a whole lot of things that my wife has that I don't that I wish I did right. and it's true in a lot of women as well it's that way and um but that doesn't mean that we should just we should we should just um, resign males to the back pew or mm. the the construction crews. Um, you know, uh, they they have a role to play, and I think that if you wanted to, if you, I think, and all that back to say, like <clears throat> church, I think, I mean. Uh, if, if our if our if our goal is to sort of improve the world that we live in towards Christ, the answer is not in a thousand kid VBS where right. they sing dumb songs. Uh, I think the 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 answer would better be to set up shop outside of high school and you know and that's you know. Wow. So there's a whole lot that I that mm -hmm. you can talk about with all that, but I absolutely agree. Wow. Um, I think it, it's been a recent thing for me to realize how important those 
that demographic plays in the, in the culture and how much the church could grow into that mm-hmm. fairly easily. Wonderful. So. Wow. Yeah, that's great and well said. Yeah. Um, yeah, our culture values feminine traits, um, and it is very suspicious of masculine traits. Um, and so, like you said, your wife, what did you say? You, 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 you picked one particular adjective to describe your wife, and it was a very feminine adjective. Gracious. Gracious, okay. Yeah, so, and we know in our culture that's, that's what you're aiming for, be gracious. What about, what if we had a culture where um, the, the champion, the really uh, most admired traits were like risk-taking or um, defending the weak, you know? We, we've lost appreciation for the good masculine traits um, and we've elevated the feminine traits so um, in in a lot of churches uh, around America the men who are active are active in feminine ways um, effeminate ways singing music you know things like that uh, working with children that kind of thing um, if if they want to do something that's sort of traditionally masculine they go somewhere else you know they do it at the gym they do it in the boy scouts or something Mm -hmm. like that okay um now right there we probably lost half our audience because the girls (laughs) hated that i know i know they hated it you're just not supposed to say these things you know (laughs) but and i've been saying a lot of things that shouldn't be said okay good um good so (laughs) well i and i just keep the train rolling okay well i put my whole i found that whole argument on the personalities of Jesus and Paul, you know, both masculine, very masculine. Mm -hmm. Jesus, um, you can accuse um, Paul of a lot of things, but being mousy and weak and passive is not one, you know. And these are our two key role models in the New Testament. Um, Paul would would be hated in America right Mm -hmm. now. He would be hated in most churches in America right now, mm. Jesus would be hated. Uh, so in one sense, it's just a cultural shift, and maybe it'll shift back, you right. know. Uh, hopefully it will. But I think wh- what will make it shift back is scarcity and um, depression, and I, I mean financial depression, you know, mm. because there was a time when f- in order for culture and families to survive, somebody had to rip animals apart yeah. with strong upper body muscles in order to feed the children. Mm-hmm. Somebody had to go and kill an animal. Somebody had to chop down trees in order to keep the babies from freezing over the winter. Mm-hmm. And now all that's gone. I mean, it's gone. And in fact, now, um, you know, now you're evil if you kill an animal, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, so um, that comes with prosperity. We have the luxury of being um, passively feminine in our culture, mm-hmm. and when I guess the next economy collapses and everybody's just struggling to eat and feed their children, then they will go back to admiring men again. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't see it happening until then. Yeah. But then a more direct question: What do we do with these young guys who love video games and nothing else? Well, first of all, I don't I don't blame them as much as the culture does. You know, because um, they've been taught that they have to suppress every impulse in their heart and soul that smacks of anything masculine. Mm-hmm. 
And so they do. They hide in the room and they play video games. Um, I think changing the stigma on, and the attitude towards those young men would help, you know. Um, but you're right. The church probably should target that. I heard you say uh, the church is, instead of, you know, a giant VBS, why don't we set up outside the high schools? And Well, uh, Muslim churches do that. Hmm. Islam is famous for the way it attracts males. Hmm. Uh, and granted, partly because they are so cruel to women, hmm. you know, and I'm not, I'm not praising them for that. Uh, they're so oppressive of women. Sure. But um, the men do reach out to the boys and in the right ways. They um, make it a target effort, and it works. Boy, does it work. Yeah. It works in... Um, poor urban American places. It works in African places. Um, and, uh, it's, and, it, and it's, it's going to be their strength, you know, and, uh, it's our weakness. Yeah. yeah. You know, t- to gain our listeners back, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense, you know, logically, um, the way that it's gone, uh, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't look good to punch somebody in the face. It looks better to talk about them behind their back or, um, you know, I, I don't mean that in the, in the worst sort of way. I guess, I, and I know I realize that sounds bad, but I guess um, it sort of makes sense the way that it came. Um, and you'd certainly need both mm, yeah. because if you don't have the effeminate, roles being filled in the mask and you only have the masculine you have you have sparta mm. um yeah equally nobody, bad yeah, yeah nobody wants to live in sparta no. um so yeah I, I you know i think it's important to note that it's it's a two-sided coin mm-hmm. um like the bible puts it really well you know when paul says like husbands you're to lead your wives and wives you're and husbands you're to well, you're supposed to lead and love and wives you're supposed to respect and um, and that sort of thing. And I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It works really well in my household. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work that well in other households. I mean, I, I, I know somebody that it's, it's where it's um, the, the wife works and the, and the man stays at home. And like, and I don't have answers for all that, but I do know that at least in my experience that the way that that has been put in the Bible works well for us. Um, and, uh, so yeah. Mm -hmm. What is, what is it like for you to be the one who goes to work? Um, because I think the default in our culture is both people are working Mm -hmm. and it's equal share of the work. So, yeah, I don't know that there's a, uh, that that's necessarily bad because there are certainly women that need a career. And, that, and they can't feel fulfilled or do a good job at the home if they don't have that need fulfilled. Um, so to answer your question, I love being the one that works. Uh, I could not do my wife's job. We have a one-year-old, and it is, it's the hardest thing for me to go back home and spend two hours with him uh, because he's constantly running around. I'm constantly saving his life. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it's, it's really draining on me. Um, 
but Reagan, she does it all day, and it's fine. Um, I, but she couldn't go and chop a tree. Chopping trees is hard, um, but I can do it. Uh, it's not a problem for me. So, um, also, I mean, personally, being the one that makes the money gave me a purpose in life that I didn't have before. Uh, I mean, I sucked at college. Uh, I didn't have commitment to anything. I was always procrastinating. You know, I already told you that I was a habitual liar before Reagan. Um, And I just had all these loose ends that needed tied up. Um, And and when I became the man, the breadwinner, uh, that that tied up most of those loose ends. Um, Like... Okay, well, uh, you know, I don't have time to, you know, goof around and do stupid stuff, and I've got to go to work at 8 in the morning and, you know, earn a earn a paycheck in order to feed the family. So, um, so yeah, I'd also, uh, you know, in t- going back to the whole setup shop outside of a high school, it's like... Um, I don't know. I think it's a national thing. It's called Young Life, uh, where I, and I participated in it. Uh, and they don't really—they're not targeting men in particular, but they—they uh, their model is <clears throat> they sort of have this pop culture. They're they're friends with pop culture. I put yeah. it that way. You know, they uh, when they they have these meetings and they're usually at like five twenty-two or some <laughs> jazzy number like that. <laughs> And, uh, and then they get together and they have all these kids and I, I used to be a part of a young life group and they would, they would sing like a John Mayer song, Katy Perry, bring in, you know, the pop and then, and then they'd like end with like a slightly Christian song. Um, and then they would play games and none of these games were safe. Like I remember one time, I mean, one of the games is, uh, that I played was, uh, like they they basically just threw a bottle in a mix of six people and whoever got the bottle first <laughs> wins wow. in like rough and tumble <laughs> kind of thing um so you know and that was really effective uh a lot of high schoolers go to those those groups and um and those masculine traits are allowed to come out in games like that wow. um and uh so yeah i think the i think there's a lot of room for that to grow and um, so. I, I'm in. I'm in shock. I had no idea that that kind of thing was around anymore. You yeah. know, especially in something as big and popular as Young Life. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. So wow, that's awesome. Do you have any advice for two people who are not only doing soul searching in this area, but are also fathers mm. of very young kids? Granted, but still fathers. Yeah. Well, obviously, I have no advice for parents, but, um, for the field of masculinity, um, you know, I could, I could name five men, um, probably the five men I know that struggle the most with just hopelessness, feeling depressed, feeling anxious, feeling miserable. Um, one trait they share in common is very aggressive wives. You know, which causes them then to be very passive men. And it leads to such mental problems for a man. But the reason it happens, I think, is because men, uh, well, they, we grow up and 
we notice that our wives, that women, have all the right traits that you're supposed to have, and we have all the wrong traits. And so they let their wives be like a mother to them, and they're like a son. And it really causes some severe relationship issues. Um, so I applaud you two guys. I mean, obviously, this is not a problem for y'all. Y'all are like just super testosterone guys. You, got, <laughs> you don't live on a farm and, you know, oh, gosh. Um, he was digging holes all day today. There you go. Yeah, for like 12 don't hours. Don't try. <sighs> Amazing. Yeah, I started to say a while ago when you asked, can I do it? Can I do it? Can I make it? I was like, gosh, you're the first person I think of when I think of a young man who's going to be able to make it. You know, uh-huh. Golly, yeah. Um, well, the so the passive and the aggressive. You know, the aggressive woman seeks out the passive man to marry and then parent. And that's what I encourage you guys not to let that happen. And you might think, well, I mean, that's just a matter of who you choose to marry. No, it it's in every area of life because our culture says women are good and we're bad. So... You hear the culture drumming, beating that drum, and eventually you start to believe it, mm-hmm. and then you just find yourself defaulting to your wife, her decision, her choice, her preference. You know, don't don't fall for that trap. Um, the uh, trust yourself. You know, uh, lead. A leader has to lead. Now that's uh, easy to say and hard to do, but. Um, I think it's easy for us, even as Christian men, to come to believe that, yeah, our wives really are just better people, better Christians, better parents, better citizens, and we are Homer Simpson, mm-hmm. you know, um, because for how long has the the father and husband been Homer Simpson in the culture and the media? Think about Everybody Loves Raymond was a super popular show, and one of the funniest bits that they— played to over and over again was the wife calling him an idiot you know mm-hmm. he would do something stupid and then at the end of the sketch she would say idiot you know and everybody laughs homer simpson's the obvious idiot um and so we have to balk against that that mindset and not to go back to the good old days of the 50s when men called all the women idiots mm-hmm. you know um, right. i don't want that but uh, that's that's our biggest challenge and i'm terrible at it i I'm, I'm not kidding. I would love, I would love to just delegate all decision-making to my wife and never make another decision as long as I live. I don't, I don't want to lead. I hate leadership. Mm. I don't want to be in charge of anything. Every time I make a unilateral decision, I make a terrible one, you know? And so sometimes I think the Bible got it wrong with me, you know? But that's, of course, impossible. So um, we have to figure out how to... Um, to fight even our own impulse, you know, mm-hmm. and you guys are doing a much better job than I am. So I'll just watch you and <laughs> emulate you. Um, I mean, it's also something to be said, like leadership takes different forms. Uh, leadership doesn't have to be testosterone. It could be, um, be spiritual. It could be emotional. It could be, um, you know, with wisdom, that sort of stuff as well. Um, so, but yeah, I, I'm blessed to not have to fight an aggressive wife. <laughs> yeah. Um, she she was born very, very passive. So, I mean, it it's, makes my job very easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think um, I'm all about, like, 
finding that um, finding that balance of who takes what role and what roles need to be filled uh, because when that machine gets oiled and running it's a good freaking mm-hmm. machine yeah, um, yeah. and uh, like it looks different for everybody it looks different for my dad and my mom um, than it does for me and my wife uh, and um, but yeah I mean I just keep going back to like uh, I think another reason that the the culture has moved toward this this glorification of the effeminate values is because in uh, because maybe the the feminine part of this culture is not getting its uh, not getting its um, fulfillment in what the men should be giving uh so and i don't mean to draw this across every and color every shade of this um but you know when all the men came back from world war ii they were really scarred Mm. uh they were they had seen things that they didn't want to think about and so they it changed the way that they and so they and so maybe they didn't delegate as much energy towards their wives as maybe they could have um and so maybe that's influenced it a little bit to where like now the woman is no longer feeling as loved from her husband and so she has to seek fulfillment in other ways maybe taking charge Mm -hmm. uh and seeking and finding that fulfillment in that way so i'm i mean I, i i know nothing i mean i like my knowledge of the world and culture is is so small but I, I have a I mean in my personal experience and in, in ways that I've seen I like maybe the women would would feel that fulfillment they would receive that fulfillment if the man was delegating the amount of energy that he should towards her mm-hmm. um, in that way being a leader and a man and, and allowing her to um, to get that fulfillment in that way so mm-hmm. yeah Right. Yeah. Yeah. If we are saying that in the Christian context, the husband has the leadership role, well, then it's on us to lead these women, lead our lead women to fulfill their roles. You know, um, it's not their fault. It's our fault if we're the leaders. You know, we have to own that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think scriptures, it's no accident that the Bible tells men to love their wives. Because that's what a woman needs and craves so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know much about women, but I do know that they respond amazingly mm-hmm. to real love, love and know? affection. Oh my gosh, yeah. And men don't don't understand that, and we don't value that. And um, conversely, women are to respect their husband. My wife can tell me, "I love you" a thousand times, and that it feels good. But she loves everyone. You know, <laughs> that's. A, but if she ever said to me. I really respect you for this yeah. one thing. Oh man, would that be wonderful? Sure. You know, so um, you know, for the ladies, the both of you who are still listening, um, if there are <laughs> any of you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, if you could just say that one phrase, not not I love you, but I respect you. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Now, husbands, we have to figure out how to say we love our wives, but then really do it. You know, right. um, we love ESPN and we love meat. And uh, we love, you know, to be alone. But do we really love our wives? And how? What's that going to look like? Yeah, it's going to be a lot of talking and a lot of affection. I think. Right. Yeah. 
What is what role does emotion play in the masculinity? Because mm. um, I am, I'm a very emotional person, uh, and <clears throat> yeah, it's um, so. Yeah, what 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 role does that play in a man? Um, mm. I think when a woman cries, everyone rushes to comfort her. When a man gets emotional, everyone cowers away out of fear that he's going to hurt them, you know? Um, so when our emotions get extreme, uh, again, the culture favors the woman, fears the man, you know? Um, I, so we have to figure out a way for men to have space to have a little bit of rage, have a little bit of anger, have a little bit of, you know, uh, blowing something off steam or whatever. Um, and while at the same time, making sure women feel safe, 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 mm. you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't take the slightest little hint of anger in my voice, and I just see my wife melt, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and she knows I'm not going to hurt her, you know. But, wow, something deeply biological kicks in if I'm aggressive in that mm. way. So emotion, um, controlling emotions that way. Uh, being emotional, you know, I think that's case by case, mm-hmm. couple by couple. Sure. You know? And it's perfectly fine. I mean, I know a lot of very happy, healthy couples where the man is real emotional and the wife is not, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't think that has to be yeah. uh, the stereotype. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going to have to close up shop close soon. Close up shop. Wow. This is when it's just getting good, though. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is so much fun. I love it. We're super grateful that you came on. Well, I've enjoyed this. It's, um, I've never done anything like this before, so yeah, it's pretty amazing. Well, um, you know, I think uh, all of us are super grateful. So, the beauty of us doing this is we now have the opportunity to have conversations with people that go well over oh, right. an hour, right. you know, on yeah. top on topics that we would love to talk about. But mm-hmm. yeah. unless you unless you have a format like this, mm. you often don't make time, yeah. you know, right. you just say, Oh, I'd love to meet with this person and talk about this. And then it never happens. So yeah, I'm grateful that we can actually, yeah, we can actually do this. And this yeah, is, this time well spent. Yeah. 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 Think so. yeah. yeah. Well, just thanks for, fun. thanks for making time for us. Sure. sure. Glad to do it. Signing out.